When I was in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, I had a job at a local building supply company. And if you know one thing about Louisville, Kentucky, it's the place where every year they have the running of the Kentucky Derby. So one year as the Kentucky Derby was coming up, and there are all kinds of festivities that happen around the Kentucky Derby in Louisville, Kentucky. One year, uh, my company offered to anybody who worked at the company um, a free t-shirt, free running shorts, and $100 to anybody who signed up for the marathon or half marathon that they run every year. Now, I'm not a runner. Yes, I'll get out and run for exercise, not nearly often enough, but I don't consider myself a runner per se. But hey, I'm in graduate school, broke, and you get a free t-shirt. And so that sounded like a great deal to me. So I signed up for the mini marathon, which was 13.1 miles, a half marathon uh, there in Louisville, Kentucky. And I didn't train, you know, nearly like I should, but it was exciting. So I'm there, and, and you get there early in the morning. And if you've ever done a race like this, it's, it's really pretty cool. You got your bib number on, and there's just thousands of people everywhere. It's a pretty exciting moment. Everybody's just jammed in at the entryway, and they, you know, they blow the horn, and everybody goes. It's really exciting, and this is a very cool moment. Until about mile two. And, and, and what I didn't know is the early section of the race was pretty much all uphill. Uh, it's through this sort of park area of town. And, and I got a real dose of reality at about mile two in this half marathon. And I thought, oh my goodness, what have I got myself into? We, we've not gone down for a really long time. And, and it doesn't look like anything's going to change anytime soon. As I think about the race, I don't remember, you know, I know some races are really clearly marked, but I don't remember this one being clearly marked. So you're running and running and running, and you don't really know how long you've run, or, or more importantly, how much is left of the race. But I did know one thing. I knew that at mile 12, when there's one mile to go, we were going to come to a place in downtown Louisville where the marathoners, who had another 14 miles to go, were going to turn right, and the half marathoners, who had one mile to go, were going to turn left. I've never been more happy to turn left in my life. And that was a second dose of reality. And this one was not like the first dose of reality. The first one was really discouraging. We're running uphill and I got a long way to run. The second dose of reality, nothing changed in the moment, still running, but I knew there was only one mile left. And I could do that. I had gone 12 miles I could make that last mile. That was a really encouraging dose of reality. I saw where I was, and it changed everything for me as I ran that race. This morning, we're going to talk about that kind of a dose of reality that can encourage us in the race that we're running in life. And I wonder where you are this morning. I wonder if you're at a place in life where you're experiencing that first kind of dose of reality. Maybe you feel like you're running uphill and it's a hard labor, and you don't know when it's going to get any easier or how long you're going to have to run this uphill race. If that's you this morning, I think we're going to find an encouraging word as we look to God's word today. As you know, we've been walking through Luke chapters 9 and 10, um, seeing this revolution that Jesus began when he called out his 12 apostles and he sent them out when he began to declare his mission in the world. And we're going to come to a significant point uh, in these chapters where Jesus is revealed to his disciples, and they saw him for who he truly was, and they got a dose 
of reality. So could I invite you uh, just to turn to Luke chapter 9 together this morning. If you have one of these actual paper Bibles, it's a great thing you could turn there. If not, there's one in the pew in front of you. It's on page 1026 uh, in the pew Bibles here at Lake Forest. I know there are also pew Bibles at Crossroads and Highland Park uh, that you could open up as well. And then, of course, everybody's got Bibles on their phones or tablets. So get something in front of you that has God's Word in it. The power is in the Word, not in the page. Uh, So that's what we believe in. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Uh, You might have another version. That's A-OK. We're reading God's Word together. Beginning Luke chapter 9 and verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is... God's Word, a dose of reality for you and me. When this scene happened in the life of the disciples, it came after a very important revelation that Jesus had just given them. And if you were here last week, you remember Mike uh, took us to the passage of Scripture where Jesus announced to the disciples that he was about to go suffer and die. And of course, that's not the message they were expecting, was it? They were expecting Jesus, who was declared the Messiah, you remember, by Peter, that this revolution he was beginning would lead to the overthrow of Rome and the immediate establishment of Jesus' kingdom here on earth. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were expecting. That's what some of them thought they were signing up for in following Jesus. So when Jesus delivered this message that the Son of Man, he was going to suffer and die, this was... This was not the kind of dose of reality they wanted, and it served as that sort of discouraging dose of reality as they're trying to process what it is that Jesus had told them. And then immediately after that, we find this event that we just read about to lift the spirits of the disciples to say, the purpose of suffering and dying, yes, is coming, but make no mistake, the power is in the revolutionary to accomplish the revolution So be encouraged. Be encouraged to follow Jesus because they saw him for who he he truly was. It was encouraging for them. And I think there is a great deal in this passage that can be encouraging for you and me as well. We're going to see three things today from this passage that I think we can faithfully lift and apply to our situations in life that might be that encouraging dose of reality for you and for me. The first of those is prayer. Notice how the passage opens up. 
the first couple of verses. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. The scene opens with four important words. As he was praying. I just want to make two observations about that phrase at the outset of this scene of the transfiguration. First observation is that this is just what Jesus did. Jesus prayed. As you read through the Gospels, you find him praying consistently. Jesus intentionally and frequently carved out large portions of time to connect with the Father in prayer. Luke chapter 5 says he would often steal away to solitary places so that he might pray and talk with his Father. Mark chapter 1, introducing the ministry of Jesus, says he would rise up early in the morning before the sun had arisen and go off to a solitary place to pray. In Luke chapter 6, just before Jesus calls out the 12 apostles from among his disciples, big decision, big decision point in the life of his ministry, Jesus spent all night in prayer, Luke 6 tells us. Of course, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he went and spent the night in prayer up on a mountain at the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is what Jesus did. Jesus prayed. It also helps us understand a little bit of the context of this scene. I don't know what images come to your mind when we're reading this passage of Jesus' face altering and his clothing becoming white and this scene up on the mountain, but likely it happened at night. If, if we understand Jesus' regular practice of prayer, it was very well the wee hours of the morning when this scene took place, which is helpful because it helps make sense of the sleepy disciples. So in the middle we find that they were heavy with sleep. It was probably the middle of the night as Jesus was praying. So that's the first observation. This is just simply Jesus' practice of prayer. Secondly, and and probably more significantly, especially in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus prays, something significant usually happens. We see it first in Luke chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. It says Jesus was baptized, and as he was praying, the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And a voice at that time was heard from heaven that said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus was praying, and heavens opened. Very similarly in this account that we just read at the Transfiguration, as Jesus was praying, the heavens opened once again. And there's this observation that through the prayer of Jesus, a window would open from earth to heaven, and everyone present would get a glimpse of his true glory. They would get a kind of dose of reality where they would see the realities of heaven that we don't often see because they're not right in front of our face. And this happened in the context of Jesus praying. And as we look at the details of the transfiguration, this account we just read, we see several things happened when the heavens opened. The appearance of his face, verse 29 says, was changed. The transfiguration is also described in the Gospels of Matthew and in Mark. And in Matthew it says his face shone like the sun. So his face was altered in a way that was just radiant and bright. Verse 29 goes on to say his clothing became dazzling white. Verse 30, he was joined by two prophets, Moses and Elijah. Now of course Moses and Elijah weren't just old men. 
They couldn't have been alive here on the earth. Moses had lived some 1,600 years prior. Elijah, some 850 years prior. We find in verse 34 that a cloud came and overshadowed the disciples. And then the high point of this window opening into heaven is that they heard the voice of God the Father speaking directly to them. When Jesus prayed, the heavens opened. Now, there's a lot to this phrase, as he was praying. And the reason I'm emphasizing prayer is that it's so clearly central, both before and during and after this account of the transfiguration. If you remember, when Jesus was announcing that he would suffer and die, what was he doing at the beginning of that account? Mike pointed it out last Sunday. He was praying. In the account that happens just after the transfiguration, it's the story of a boy who was possessed by a demon, and and they brought him to Jesus' disciples, but the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. And so they, they, they called on Jesus and said, we can't cast him out. Jesus came, cast out the demon, and the disciples said, how did you do that, and why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus said, this kind, Mark tells us, can only be cast out through prayer. So prayer is a central defining focus in the immediate context of the transfiguration. Interestingly, the transfiguration, as I said, happens in Matthew and in Mark. And not only is the transfiguration present, but the account from Jesus declaring uh, his suffering and where Peter said he was the Messiah, all the way through that account of the uh, demon-possessed boy, that whole section is intact in all three of the first Gospels. tells me that context is important also emphasizing prayer because I believe prayer is designed to be that consistent dose of reality for you and for me. To be our window between earth and heaven. And if Jesus, the Son of God, intentionally and frequently carved out large portions of time for prayer, then how much more should we? And so I'll ask you, How often can it be said of you as he was praying or as she was praying? I wonder if you're at a spot in your life right now where you might say, spiritually speaking, there's just not a lot happening. I know I'm supposed to be really dialed in, really engaged. I hear Mike preaching week after week on the revolution, and I know that I'm supposed to be a, a serious follower of Christ, but honestly, if I'm just being frank... There's just not a lot happening spiritually. Some of us are carrying around guilt around that daily. And I wonder if one reason is because like the disciples at the scene of the transfiguration, our prayer life has gone to sleep. Ephesians 5.14, the Apostle Paul quotes the Old Testament and says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, For Christ has shone on you. And so there's a message for you and me this morning in observing the context of prayer and in the practice of prayer of Jesus that calls you and me to awake from the dead, arise from our sleep to a life of prayer. How do we do that? I believe there are four things that are necessary for the kind of prayer life that that we see Jesus modeling for us. Surely there are more, but at least these four. The first I want to point out is this. Prayer requires humility. Prayer requires humility. 
Think about it. Prayer is an act of submission. It's an acknowledgement that I don't have all the answers. It's bowing the knee to the only one who does have the answers. And when we're proud, we don't pray. When we have our act together, so we think, we don't pray. And I think for some of us, that may be the biggest barrier to prayer, is that you've never submitted your life to Jesus as Lord, because you're the Lord of your life. And so that's a call for some of us today, maybe for the first time, to submit our lives to Jesus Christ. That's why when we come to faith in Him for the first time, it's marked so significantly by a prayer that says, Lord, I am a sinner. I don't deserve to know You. I don't know how to run my life, and I certainly can't save myself. And so I bow the knee to You. Ask Your forgiveness. And I want to follow You as Lord of my life. That's a first step some of us may need to take this morning. If it is, after our service, we'll have people here and in all of our campuses available to talk with you about taking that step of checking our pride, humbling ourselves, and submitting to Jesus Christ. So prayer requires humility. Prayer also requires discipline. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you know this, and this is the snag for many of us, if not most. Prayer simply requires discipline. You'll notice in Jesus' practice of prayer quite often, he chose prayer over sleep. So praying might mean sleeping less for some of us. And i got to say, I don't so much like that. For me, personally, prayer is one of my idols. I, lo- I mean, prayer. Sleep is one of my idols. I love sleep. I've got a 10-week-old at home. Especially right now, sleep is precious. But if it's not sleeping less so that we can pray more, certainly it's doing something less so that we can pray more. You've heard it said, you can tell what someone values by what's on their calendar. I wonder how many of us have prayer, solitary prayer, time spent with God, built into our calendar. Prayer requires discipline. Prayer also requires preparation. The kind of investment Jesus made in prayer would not work for most of us without a plan. And and how many of us, when we pray, we just kind of tend to say the same stuff over and over again? And it's because when we come to time to pray, we've really not thought at all about what we're going to pray about. Prayer requires preparation. And Jesus laid a great roadmap for prayer in the Lord's Prayer, maybe more appropriately called the Disciples' Prayer. And for me, I found it helpful just to use that as a roadmap. What is the Lord's Prayer? He says, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And not just saying those words, but stopping to acknowledge God is holy. God is sovereign. He is the king. And right at the outset, I need to acknowledge that and bow the knee and submit to him, my Father in heaven. And it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many things in our lives are crying out for the kingdom of God to be present? So we might pray for all kinds of things that, you know what, in this situation, in this relationship, Lord, would would your kingdom come here and your will be done 
here on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for those things. He says, give us this day our daily bread. It's an invitation to pray for daily provision, daily wisdom. He says, forgive us for our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We all have sins, either of actions or sins of the heart or both, that need to be confessed and brought before God. It's a good plan to build in time to confess our sins to God. And then his final phrase is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How much temptation surrounds us that we want to pray to be guarded against so that we're not vulnerable and we're constantly falling to the same temptations. Jesus knew that and he laid out a roadmap so that we might be prepared when we pray because significant prayer does require preparation. Fourth and finally, prayer requires expectation. We've got to expect that it's going to do something. If we have no expectation that our prayers make any difference, then we won't pray, will we? By definition, prayer is an act of faith. Because when we come to prayer and when we leave prayer, usually we don't see or feel anything different. There's not a physical, literal transfiguration before our eyes. But I would suggest that in those quiet moments, when we've carved out that time, just as Jesus did, there is a significant window opened between our reality here on earth and the true reality of heaven. And that's a gift for us. That we could have that daily, continual dose of reality through praying as Jesus prayed. Recognizing that when we pray, something significant happens. So that's the first dose of reality I want to point to this morning. There are two more. The second is the perspective and the way it changed for the disciples when they saw Jesus for who he truly was. In the New Testament, Jesus' revolution was not aimed at overthrowing Rome and establishing his kingdom right away. And today, if if we're a part of Jesus' revolution, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, The plan is not to overthrow all your problems and establish a happy, peaceful life here and now, right away. That's not the purpose of the revolution. So it was a perspective changer for these disciples to hear that suffering would be involved, but Jesus as Lord was master over even the suffering and that his purpose would be accomplished. Our perspective is changed when we get a dose of reality and see Jesus for who he he truly is. I want to say two things about the way that the disciples' perspectives were changed and the way that our perspective might be changed as we see Jesus for who he truly is. How many of you have a clear sort of idea in your mind of how the Old Testament ends? Just think about it right now. How does the Old Testament end? conclude. The Old Testament concludes with a keen sense of anticipation that the purposes Jesus, that God established at the beginning of the Old Testament would in fact be fulfilled 
in his son, Jesus Christ. Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4 is the final book of the Old Testament. And there's a strong connection from what we see here in the transfiguration and the way the Old Testament comes to an end and the sense of expectation that it holds out for those of us who are reading the Bible and for the Israelites who were living uh, as the people of God at the time. So could I invite us uh, just to take a couple of moments? We're going to turn to Malachi chapter 4. It's a few pages to the left if you've got a paper Bible. It's a few pushes of a button if you've got an electronic Bible. It's a short chapter, six verses. This is how the Old Testament ends. And it's setting us up, connecting us to what we just found in the transfiguration. First, we hear the voice of the Lord saying, behold, the day is coming. This is Malachi chapter 4 verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You will go out leaping like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So we're seeing the voice of the Lord speaking. Verse 4, the Lord continues and he says, remember the law of my servant Moses. So Moses is present. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And then in verses 5 and 6 we find Yes, Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and to strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. If you were a part of the Unplugged Men's Conference with Robert Lewis the past couple of days, uh, you know that he referenced this passage on Friday night, uh, emphasizing the importance of fathers' hearts turning toward their children and children to their fathers. But it's interesting, isn't it, that in this closing scene of the Old Testament, we find the same three figures who were prominent at the transfiguration. We find the voice of God, we find Moses, and we find Elijah. And it's making it clear to us that the revolution Jesus started has an eternal purpose. It's accomplishing the same eternal purpose that was established throughout the Old Testament that God had begun. And not only does it show that the revolution has an eternal purpose, it shows that the revolutionary, Jesus Christ, has eternal power. Because it connects all of those themes from Malachi chapter 4 and centers them here in Jesus Christ. So if we're going back over to Luke chapter 9, our main text for the day, we see that there was a physical manifestation of the Son of Righteousness. In Malachi 4, the title for Jesus there is the Son, S-U-N, like the Son of Righteousness. And so when his face lit up and shone like the sun, there's this physical manifestation of what was declared by the prophet Malachi. There was also the presence of Moses. And the exhortation in Malachi was that the law would be kept, the law would be fulfilled. And sure enough, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus had completed that work. Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said to the people, there will come a day when you will receive a prophet who is like me. 
and it is to him that you will listen. And here's Jesus having this affirmation from the Father, listen to him. There's Elijah. Elijah, it's said, would come and prepare the way. And we're told in in the context of the Gospels that that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist served as the Elijah who was to come to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, the Son of God who has eternal power. And of course, the voice of God speaks again. And just as Moses had prophesied, God the Father says, listen to him. Jesus, the revolutionary, has eternal power to accomplish the eternal purposes of God's plan. And then, of course, Moses and Elijah spoke of Jesus' departure, literally Jesus' exodus, when that work would be accomplished. So there was a change of perspective And it should change our perspective. If we're at a place in life where we feel like we're running uphill, there is an eternal purpose to following Jesus Christ. And it calls us, it calls you and me to see that eternal purpose. All of this is a clear sign to us of what Jesus Christ was accomplishing then and is accomplishing now. But there's one more thing I want to point to. One more perspective changer when we see this dose of reality, and that is the reality of patience. We get a dose of reality in prayer. We get a dose of reality that changes our perspective. But at the end of this account, we find that one of the realities when we see the purposes of heaven is that we're called to be patient. Because the cross comes before the crown. The cross comes before the crown. And this is what Jesus had told his disciples just prior to the transfiguration. I'm going to suffer and die. And in fact, not only I, but all who will follow me will also suffer. So count the cost. Because the cross comes before the crown. The first section of the transfiguration focused on Jesus and what happened with him. But about a third of the way through, the shift focuses to Peter and the other disciples and their response And there were really two responses that we find. The first begins in verse 32. It was with Peter speaking up. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And so Peter responded, and in verse 33, we find that Peter speaks up right away, which is what Peter does, right? He speaks up right away. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, we're not sure exactly what was going through Peter's mind at that moment, but there seems to be a strong connection to the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a major event in the calendar in the life of Israel, not unlike Thanksgiving for us. It was an event where they gave thanks for the deliverance that God had accomplished through bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. They were celebrating that exodus. And maybe Peter had in mind, this was time to celebrate Here's Jesus had accomplished his purpose. We've got Moses, we've got Elijah, we've got the voice of the Lord. It's time to celebrate. Or maybe Peter just wanted to extend the moment. He wanted them to stay for a while, so let's build these tents so that we can stay and visit for a while, which would have been the practice of the Feast of the Tabernacles as well. In whatever case, if we're told clearly, Peter didn't know what he was saying. 
The other accounts in Matthew and Mark say he was terrified and didn't know what to say. But he spoke up into that moment. That was the first response. But the second response is really where this section is driving and really where it lands uh, on us today. Verse 34 says, As he, Peter, was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. At the end of this section, the disciples ultimately were silent. And this is significant because it's what Jesus had commanded them in the section before. Jesus told them, I am going to suffer and die. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. But be silent about these things because my time has not yet come. At that time, they weren't willing to be silent. In fact, Peter rebuked Jesus. It's that famous section where Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Because this command to silence, to accept what Jesus was saying, was just too much at that moment. But here, with the voice of the Father reinforcing Jesus' message, he says, listen to him. And the disciples got it. And we find at the end, Peter, James, and John were, in fact, silent. And you get the distinct impression that their lips were tight Their lips were closed because there was just nothing more to say. They accepted the word of the Lord. They were called to go and suffer, and they would. And they would still struggle with this idea, too. It wasn't a once and forever done thing. They still struggled with Jesus' plan and call to suffer. But here's where it connects with us as well. God has a plan for you and for me. Sometimes we experience that dose of reality and we do feel like we are running uphill with no end in sight. But just as the disciples saw with their eyes that the revolutionary has eternal power to accomplish his purposes, and even though there may be suffering today, the reality is, the eternal reality is, he's leading to a day when just as the Old Testament prophesied, All evil will be vanquished. All pain will be wiped away. There will be perfection for all who are a part of this revolution. That's the dose of reality that was given to the disciples. And I know for us, we're looking for that kind of dose of reality sometimes. We we think, Lord, I would follow you more faithfully. I would be encouraged if only you would reveal something to me. Take this for you. God's Word is living and active. Take the transfiguration as your dose of reality because when Jesus was appearing for these disciples, it wasn't only for Peter, James, and John. It was for every follower of Jesus at the time, and it's for all of us who have the privilege of knowing and reading God's Word. So be encouraged today. See this heavenly dose of reality. Commit to it in prayer. Have your perspective changed, but be willing 
to be patient. Because the cross comes before the crown. Could I pray for us? Father, it's hard to keep perspective in this life. Things happen, good things, hard things, the whole spectrum that cause us to lose sight of who you are and to lose sight of the higher reality of heaven and of your purposes. And so I pray that today you would lift our eyes, lift our hearts to experience the kind of a dose of reality that would encourage us, that would draw us to you, that we might take part in this revolution that you began and are accomplishing even today. Strengthen us today by the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.